I think so. I think so. And I, I look forward to, uh, to be able to touch you, Yoel. Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, still remote from Bali, is my friend and colleague, Mickey Enslicht. Mickey, you're looking even more tan and relaxed than the last time I saw you. Yes, it's uh, it's it's hard to believe that my, my three months are almost up, but I've got uh, a little bit less than a month left. And, um, you know, we're going to be talking about privilege today, and I feel incredibly privileged being here. And, uh, you know, I want to tell you one reason why I'm privileged. I, you'll, you'll remind me why I'm privileged in other ways. But one reason why is that I realized a few days ago that paper has not touched my ass in two and a half months. And it's wonderful, Yoel. I mean, it is a beautiful feeling. So, Mickey, I, I'm assuming you just poop in the ocean. That's what you're saying? <laughs> yes, I, I, I let the swim, uh, the fish swim in my ship. No, I mean, so they're really into the, um, the bidets here. And they're, I think they're influenced by the Japanese style of bidets. Not one of these kind of monster porcelain objects you see in Europe. You're like, which I, I never know how to use and I'm scared to use. It's kind of these little attachments. The, 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 one of these things is attached to the toilet itself. And you kind of just sit there. And the first time you're like, there's no way I'm pressing that button. Not at all. I'm not touching that button. And then, you know, the curiosity just gets the best of you. And you're like, what happens if I press that button? And, you know, a nice, beautiful uh, stream of water, perfectly aimed. That is a real, that's the real magic there. Perfectly aimed. And, you know, for a couple seconds, feels pleasant. You're all clean. And that's it. No paper. Yeah. So are you going to have your home toilet retrofitted once you're back? I am. I definitely am. And it's such a great thing. I really love it. I mean, are you a bidet user? Are you, is that something? You, you know, know so you as, as you know, having been to my house, um, my bathroom actually has built in one of the big separate bidets. Um, but I have to admit, I find it a little intimidating. It's like, there's a, there's a lot going on there. A lot of knobs, a lot of dials. And uh, I'm, I'm afraid of like doing something wrong and it ending badly. So I, I mostly don't use it. Sad to say. Yeah, you know, those crazy porcelain monsters. I mean, the first time I saw one, I'm like, oh, a water fountain. Uh, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> like, I really had no idea. And occasionally, like, you know, we've been to Europe with the kids and they will also just like turn it on. Oh, look at the spray going on. I'm like, no, kids, stay away from that. Um, but no, these little, these little numbers attached to the toilet are, are, are fantastic. So listen, um, it's your nine in the morning. Um, what are you drinking? Well, to be honest, I'm drinking uh, coffee and iced coffee uh, because uh, despite me being super excited to have a conversation with you and, you know, we've got a kind of, I think, um, quite a topic on, in store for our listeners today. Uh, so I was excited and I kind of woke up in the middle of the night, a little bit tired. So I am drinking an iced coffee, but uh, I will not let our listeners down. And of course, I'm drinking beer as well. I haven't started yet, but I searched long and hard for a beer that was not a bintang. So bintang is... Uh, it's everywhere in Bali. It's just the beer here. It's a kind of boring pilsner. Um, and I found a place, a little market that uh, sold some craft beer. Uh, there's a bunch of craft beer in Bali sold. Uh, it's made in New Zealand, so, but I wanted something more local. So I got something called, uh, it's Tumaje beer. Um, it's a, a golden ale, 4.9%. Uh, I think it's... Um, Bottle conditioned, meaning there's a little bit of yeast at the bottom, and it continues to ferment uh, in the uh, while it's sitting in a bottle. So I have not tried this yet, and I'm looking forward to it. Very nice. Um, and I, uh, this is the exact opposite of what you did. So you did like maximum effort to find something, and I was like, "What beers are left over in my fridge from parties that I've hosted, where people have like brought beer that hasn't been drunk?" So I found this Delirium Red strong fruit beer. Yeah, it's a Delirium Tremens here. Um, it is. Whoops, uh, the cap just went flying. It's it's like a eight percent. I want to say so. It's not messing around. Yeah, 8%. Um, but little bottle, so I should be able to make it through this. Is it possible that that is still left over from when Caitlin Warner sent us beer? Oh, yeah. That's definitely what it's from. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so thanks, Caitlin. <laughs> yeah, Caitlin gifts, keeps on giving. Coming Amazing. through. Just keeps coming yeah. through. Yeah. So well, All right. Well, let's, uh, let's drink. All right. Cheers, sir. 
Cheers. Cheers. Whoa. It's interesting. It's super fruity. It's very alcoholic tasting. Wow. I don't know. It takes some getting used to. All right. I hope you're going to drink two of them or uh, two, two of a, two beers. <laughs> we'll see. We're sort of down to the dregs. Uh, I may I may have to switch to bourbon for round two. Um, All right. Okay. So we got we got a lot of fun stuff to talk about, um, and I think we should just get right into it, shouldn't we? Yeah, definitely. I'm excited for today's uh, episode. Right. So like you said, uh, privilege is the main event. We're going to be deeply examining your unearned privilege, Mickey. Um, but first, um, I, I wanted to talk about a story that I saw in the New York Times about a month ago. This is March 4th. The headline here was, Google finds it's underpaying many men as it addresses wage equity. And this is about a recent review that Google has committed to do yearly to see whether uh, the presumption was that women would be underpaid relative to men. So they go through every employee at the firm. They compare what employees who are at the same like level are making, and they look for gender inequities. And actually what they found, kind of embarrassingly in this review, is that it was the men who are being underpaid on average relative to the women. Um, and so that caused a bit of a, I would say, pushback on Twitter. Um, and uh, there was some talk about various problems with how they had done this analysis of pay disparities. Um, and I, I want to get into that a little bit. And I take it, Mickey, you've done some research on the quote unquote collider bias, which some people brought up as, as possibly explaining these kind of weird results. Um, but it seems like there's there's essentially there's two ways that you could look at um, gender equity or equity across any other demographic, I would think, in pay. The first is you could just look at men and women on average across the firm. How much do men make? How, how much do men make? How much do women make? Um, that's not ideal, right? Because it may be that men and women have different jobs. Now, it could be it, it could be argued, and I think people have argued here that, well, men and women have different jobs is maybe the result of gender discrimination, right? If women are hired for lower status roles than men are, even at equal qualifications. Um, but the problem with doing this whole company analysis as well is that it's easy to gain by just hiring a bunch of like low paid men, right? So you hire a bunch of like male janitors who make uh, minimum wage and it pulls down the average wage of all men and your your metric looks better, right? So it's it's somewhat easy to game. So I think the better way to do it in the way that Google is in fact doing it um, is to look within um, a, 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 the same job. So like, let's say you're a level three engineer. How much do men at that designation make? How much do women at that designation make? That's the analysis that Google did. And there they discovered that women are actually on average out earning men. Now, I think it's interesting to talk about like, well, what are the problems with doing it that way? One thing that struck me about the story is that, you know, the immediate reaction and of, I guess, the reporter and in terms of who they got quotes from and so on was like, well, there must be something wrong with the measure because we know that women must be in some way underpaid relative to men. And this, it, it must just be the case that the way that they did it is is wrong. And that, that seemed interesting to me, right? So it doesn't seem impossible that a company that's as focused on this as Google is, and I really think that this has been something that they've really cared about, it doesn't seem impossible that they might achieve gender equity, right? And and it, so it almost starts to seem like, how are you possibly dis going to disconfirm the hypothesis um, that men and women are being paid unequally if there's like really no evidence that can convince you, right? You really have to ask like, well, what is the evidence that would convince people that men and women are being treated equally at this particular firm? Yeah. So uh, I want to comment on a couple of things. So first, I agree with you. It's, there, there seems to be an asymmetry uh, in the level of skeptic skepticism leveled uh, on certain claims. So, for example, if the exact same analysis conducted by Google had shown that there is indeed a bias favoring men, it would make headlines, people would be upset. Uh, but I don't think too many people would be skeptical of the results. They would be, this sucks, this confirms what we've been saying all along, what are we doing about it? Um, whereas here, what you're seeing is pushback based on the results themselves. Okay? And I think you see that in all kinds of spheres when we find results that don't fit the party line. So I remember a few months ago, I found a, a study 
um, that apparently had been a year old, but I, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that at the time, examining bias of professor, about student evaluations of professors, looking at rate my professor, this kind of fucked up uh, online rating system, and found that there was actually not a bias uh, against women. It seemed that women and men were evaluated about equally, more or less. And when I retweeted that on, on Twitter, I got some pushback saying, well, the method was wrong. Look, here's what's wrong with Rate My Professor, and this is why it's problematic. And all those comments are true. Um, but again, there is, a, 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 I, I would say, healthy skepticism, um, but it's only on one side. It's asymmetric. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, isn't that how it ought to be? I mean, if we're good Bayesians and we've got priors about the way the world is, then if we have evidence that goes against our priors, shouldn't we be more skeptical about that evidence? Shouldn't we demand better evidence? Shouldn't we, you know, uh, uh, inter interrogate it more than we would otherwise? And I think the answer is yes. I mean, it would be nice if we examined and were skeptical of all studies equally, but we have priors. We live in the real world and we have base rates and those influence uh, our judgments. And I think that's what's going on here. Now, I think there probably is some motivated reasoning here as well. I mean, I, although I suppose that's baked into the priors, but I, you know, I wonder what you think of that. I mean, as kind of a pushback against this kind of idea of uh, it's complete motivated reasoning. Yeah, no, that's right. And that's always been in JDM a problem with research that purports to show motivated reasoning is it could be that people have different priors and they're just acting rationally um, given those priors. And like when you're designing a study, there's ways to get around that alternative explanation when you're talking about people reacting to real world evidence. Um, then obviously that's tougher. I mean, what I would just ask is like, we can sort of introspect and think about like, well, is our prior really based on good evidence or is it based on what other people in our group believe? You know, what we generally would like to believe are kind of impressions based on anecdotes about how things are in a certain industry, right? So I do think that saying, well, I just have this prior and that's that, that's a little too easy. You have to ask like, are those priors actually based on uh, sources of, of of information that we really think are reliable. Yeah, I think that's fair. I I I think one could claim there's solid standing for this prior. I mean, throughout history, uh, for various reasons, women have been denied certain roles, uh, denied education, denied the you know, the vote. Right, so it's. It wouldn't be unfair to think that, you know, uh, that there are these biases, you know, baked in. But but I think I, I take your point as well. We've got to you know, investigate them. And, you know, we're, you know, we're in 2019 now. We're not in, you know, 1919. So things have changed a lot. So uh, I, I get your point. But I think as well, I understand why there um, there is this skepticism that's asymmetric. And I don't think it's necessarily irrational. Right. So what is this collider bias that these skeptics keep talking about? Yeah, so this is the, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to just move my mouth and words are going to come out of it, but I I barely understand uh this concept. So this is, you know, the first time I became aware of this concept of collider bias was when Julia Rohrer, who is a graduate student in Germany, wrote a brilliant blog post on the topic and then wrote a a, a great paper uh in in AMPS, um Advances in Methods in Psychological Science. Uh talking about all the biases that can creep in when we're trying to infer causation in observational data. And I tell you, I read that paper and afterwards I'm like, oh my God, we're fucked. I mean, I just like, it's so hard to infer causation without experiments. Um, and you can, can try to control this, that, or the other, but it's possible that you're introducing biases that uh, lead to spurious associations that not only do you get the, you know, the magnitude of an association wrong, you might even get the sign wrong. Okay, and what's that? And one such example is something called collider bias, and so the collider bias in this case is controlling for job prestige. So what Google did was they examined pay for men and women, uh, controlling for job prestige, and it makes sense as you mentioned earlier, right? We want to make sure that we're examining. Uh, you know, equal uh, the pay for equal work. We don't want to be comparing, let's say, administrative staff or janitorial staff with, you know, uh, high-level software engineers. We want to be comparing apples to apples. And the only way you can do that is somehow uh, controlling for job prestige. But now the problem here is that job prestige itself 
is a collider with gender and with, uh, with pay. Okay, so it's possible that um, there are things that contribute to job prestige that uh, that are related to both, you know, our independent variable in this case, gender and pay. So let's say, for example, ambition. This is an example that Julia Rohrer gave me as I kind of asked her to help me understand this concept of it more. Let's say um, uh, what contributes to job prestige is gender. So we, we might have, let's say, men uh, who, who want to work long hours and women who don't want to work longer hours uh, for various reasons. You can think of whatever mechanism you like. Um, but we have a separate and, and, and independent contributor to job prestige, which is ambition. Okay. Um, and ambition, uh, so, so prestige contributed by gender and by ambition. And ambition also determines pay, or at least correlates with pay. Well, now what you've got is you've got something that's associated with your, your again, your, your independent variable and your dependent variable, and it could possibly lead to spurious associations. So what you might have is you might have, for example, men who end up being in prestigious occupations because they were pushed to that or because women kind of didn't want to be in those positions. Or you might have, you know, really, really ambitious women who are in those positions um, uh, because it might be, let's say, harder to get into those positions for them than for men, let's say. Um, and then what ends up happening is you might actually have a negative relationship. Uh, in other words, you might have a relationship such that um, women are uh, better paid in the high prestige kinds of positions, not because they're women, but because they're more ambitious and they're better and they're smarter and all, and all, all the kinds of things. So, Again, words came out of my mouth. I think it makes sense, but the look on your face tells me it might not make sense. Um, so, like, what's the right way to do this analysis? So, uh, according to Paul Hummermund, who is a, an economist who keeps on raising these issues, and in fact, I think he's even examined this very issue with he talked. He, he was tweeting about Google and, and the pay gap. I mean, his solution, which to me sucks, it's a terrible solution, is just like, don't condition on job prestige. Just look at the kind of, um, at the, uh, the spread of, of, of pay across women and across men and try to determine this, you know, just by looking at it, you know, not conditioning it on, on, on prestige or class. But to me, that makes no sense because then you really are comparing apples and oranges. But his argument is at least there, you know what you're doing. At least there you know there's an apples to orange comparison and maybe you can do something about it. Whereas if you're doing math and you're getting completely wrong answers, like there's no point. You're actually um, correcting for something that might be not just incorrect, but incorrect in the wrong way um, is his argument. I, so in other words, it's a big shrug. What the fuck do we do? I don't know. But his argument is, is you can't be doing this conditioning on job prestige. Right. So I feel like this proposed solution is... I don't know, uh, as bad or worse, I guess, because uh, this example that I mentioned earlier of you hire a bunch of low-paid men, average pay for men goes down. You haven't made women who are working at equivalent levels of their male peers better off, but you've kind of made it appear that men and women are being treated more equitably, right? I, I think that's just as misleading. Yeah, I, I, I agree. To me, it just... <laughs> I, I really don't even like talking about this because the intuitive answer, which is the one controlling for prestige, apparently statistically is wrong. Okay. Um, and, and I only grasp 10% of why it's wrong. Um, and, but nonetheless, I don't think we want to be legislating uh, or nor do we want to be like compensating people based on stats that people who know far more than I, you or I, are saying is incorrect. Uh, so, but the, the other solution doesn't seem right either. So essentially, it's a big, like, I don't fucking know what to do. Okay. Yeah. Let's, I think this is a great, um, our listeners can educate us kind of opportunity because like, I have to admit, I like, I feel like I half understand what you're saying, uh, but I really need to read her email and think about it. And maybe listeners can chime in and tell us the right way to think about this statistically. You know, I'm also going to post her paper, her, her brilliant paper on, in apps. I mean, like I said, I, we read this Fred Lab meeting and all of us, every single one of, one of us was like kind of left, left the meeting despondent. We're like, fuck inference. Like, we can't do this shit. Like, it, it doesn't make sense. We, we, you know, there's so many problems with inference that like, let's just describe things. Let's do what Paul Rosen said, just describe things and try, forget about trying to examine like, you know, inferences about cause and effect. Well, um, that to me is a little bit of a backhanded compliment to Julia, but um, <laughs> yes, we should post that paper. It sounds 
Sounds well worth reading. All right. So, um, Mickey, you and I both took a quiz lately, a BuzzFeed quiz, right, um, to assess how privileged we are relative to everybody else who takes this quiz. Um, you check a bunch of boxes for experiences that you have or had not have not had. And then at the end, it gives you a score, your privilege percentile relative to everybody else. So I think um, I'm curious which of us is higher privilege percentile. Do you care, care to reveal your percentile first? Okay, first of all, for sure you are more privileged than me. There's like Wait, no how, fucking doubt how, about it. Where, you, where <laughs> are you getting this? That is bullshit. Well, okay, so, you, so you've, uh, your parents are both PhDs. That's right? true. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's right. Yeah. You know, so I think that alone. But that wasn't um, on the know, test. My, no, that wasn't on the test, which I'm fucking upset about. Um, you know, my, you know, my, you know, my family were like middle class, sometimes lower middle class. My dad struggled occasionally with, you know, steady employment. So it wasn't, it wasn't all good in my family. It wasn't, it wasn't bad either. But it was okay. Sure. My score was, um, uh, 57th percentile. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm 91st. So, Jesus Christ! I <laughs> Silver spoon, man. Silver spoon. Yeah. So did I win? Th- did I win this one? Then? Yeah, you do. Yeah, you win by having the lowest score. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah, uh, I think there's get get to something I'll talk about later, which is kind of like this oppression Olympics. Right. Um, so, so I, you know what your prize is? Your prize is you get to be in charge of this segment, and I think a great way to start is how did we get the idea to talk about privilege to start with? Yeah, uh, yeah, this is uh, yeah, a good segue here. So um, I guess it's about a month or two ago now, uh, Eli Finkel, uh, who we didn't know is apparently a fan of our podcast and has listened to a few of our episodes. And uh, he emailed us uh, and the, the email was curious. And uh, we kind of led to a back and forth discussion between Eli, yourself and, and me. And um, he's allowed us to read the email. So I'm just going to go ahead and get right into it. So... Um, Hey, Yoel and Mickey. Below is a Twitter thread I wrote in response to your When Does the Left Go Too Far episode, which I love. That's actually one of our most downloaded episodes. Um, If you're wondering why this thread doesn't ring any bells, the answer is that I wasn't brave enough to share it on social media. It has lived on my computer and nowhere else since the episode aired. I find that interesting, right? He's a little bit too scared to kind of express his true feelings about this sensitive topic. But I'm sending it to you guys because it seems like the sort of reaction slash feedback you might value. I hope it's clear that this feedback comes entirely from from a place of respect and admiration that doesn't obligate you to engage, of course. But given who we are, we, of course, are engaging. Uh, See you soon, Eli. Okay, so now he's going to post his would-be Twitter thread. Um, um, He numbers them, but I won't number them. I'll just kind of read them. so the new Four Beers pod, podcast episode from Mickey Inslicht and Yoel Inbar, When Does the Left go too, go too Far, inspired me to write my first ever real Twitter thread. The topic has also been top of mind for me lately, so I was intrigued. Also, after listening to the Replication Crisis Gets Personal episode, I concluded that Mickey and Yoel am- are among our field's bravest souls. I, we we got to cut that. That's too self-regarding. <laughs> <laughs> that's bullshit. Well, yeah, I mean, thank you very much, Eli. That's very nice, but we can't leave that. Um, um, given the topic and the bravery of these scholars, I listened right away. I was both impressed and disappointed. I found the new episode fascinating, and I certainly recommend it. But I, on a one to ten bravery scale, I would rank this one at about a three. I think exception to that, Eli, you weren't even brave enough to actually comment, but nonetheless... Uh, okay, let's all... let's not insult the listeners. <laughs> it's all good. Um, okay, so Mickey, you identified places where you think the left goes too far. But to my mind, you, sh- you shied away from the most central issues. In particular, you didn't address the pros and cons of our current emphasis on privilege. My perception is that the left today is extremely focused on privilege, demographically defined. All else equal... We prefer ideas, perspectives, colleagues, conferences, speakers, etc., who are non-white, non-male, non-cisgender, and non-heterosexual. I have always been and remain on board with these preferences and values. There's a lot to be said for favoring people who have historically had less privilege over those who have had more. But as with all priorities, there are pros and cons. 
My reading is that you, Mickey and Yoel, didn't engage with those pros and cons in your latest episode. And I'm wondering whether that omission was one, accidental, two, a, represent a representation of your worldview, or three, a result of not wanting to be too provocative. Mickey, when you talked about why it's bad to treat certain people, example, white cis men, as less valuable, and their perspectives as less worthwhile, your argument was that stereotypes aren't always accurate. Some white cis men don't come from privilege. But what about the deeper question of whether we should treat certain people as less valuable simply as a function of their demographic characteristics or backgrounds or heritage? Yoel, when you talked about why it's not acceptable to fire a person who has done nothing wrong because a social media mob attacks him or her or them, you couched the discussion in terms of a minimum wage worker. But what about somebody with a higher paying job? Is it acceptable to let social media mobs get a person fired if he or she or they is not poor? Isn't the salary irrelevant to this point? In short, what's your take on the left's emphasis on privilege, especially as we, the left, define it today? I find it easy to see why this emphasis makes our science or society and our institutions better. But are there any downsides? That's a, that's, that, that's a Twitter thread. Um, I'm glad that Eli shared it with us. I wish he had, he had sent it, but I also understand why he didn't. Um, because, uh, you know, even when we say something benign on Twitter, we get pushed back. So, and this is, this is I think, would be considered uh, provocative to many. Yeah, so, so what's, what's your reaction to his um, implicit accusation that you are being pusillanimous in, your, in how, <laughs> how you talked about this topic? That's hilarious. I, I mean, and I, I loved your word of pusillanimous. I want to bring pusillanimous back, uh, Yoel. We're doing um, that. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I think at the time, it certainly wasn't for lack of courage. Um, I, I think I actually, you know, I, I do think there are pros to, 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 to speaking about privilege, to having an emphasis about privilege in our society. I, I think there are, are, are real, real um, benefits to it. it it's, it's been eye-opening to me. Um, so I think in that episode, uh, I, I don't think I wanted to touch on that because I think I was more focused on the positives, but his email and his, you know, um, stillborn uh, tweet thread, uh, got me thinking about the negatives as well. And, and so I, I really thank Eli for, for getting me, to, for pushing me, pushing us to think about this, uh, because it wasn't something I really considered. Um, what about you? What is your kind of overall response to, uh, to the email? Uh, yeah, to me, it, it depends so much about on, you know, what the details are of what you actually want to do. And I feel like oftentimes these discussions are at this very abstract level of you don't value this group, you do value that group, and this isn't fair. Um, to defend myself, like, I do think it's worse to unfairly fire a minimum wage worker than somebody who's wealthy because somebody who's wealthy has more resources, right? They can, they can probably pay their rent until they find another job. Whereas with somebody who's, you know, just getting by, uh, they're, they're more harmed, like the harm is greater. So I don't think that that you know, but I'm I'm nitpicking about that specific example. Yeah, because you're judging this. You're judging the kind of the moral stance here based on the outcome, as opposed to the 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 the, the just the, the the procedure with which the outcome was reached. That's right. And, That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I'm more of a, a utilitarian in that way. Um, worst consequences, right? Um, I take it his larger point is something like we have this conception of some demographic groups are advantaged over others, which is accurate. Um, but how do we, what do we do with that knowledge? And to me, it seems like this is a value that in some ways has become moralized or sacred in the way that Tetlock has talked about a lot. Um, and that means that it can be sort of brought up as a conversation ender. Like, if this policy I'm proposing harms some group that's seen as less privileged or advantages some group that's seen as more privileged, you can put that out there as an objection to it. And then it's very tough to say, I agree, it does do that, but it has these other good outcomes, so we should do it anyway. 
right? And and so that's this like idea of like once a value becomes sacred, it's no longer okay to say, yeah, that's an important consideration, but we need to trade it off against other things as well. Particularly when the other things are um, kind of more mundane considerations, like, oh, it would be really expensive to do that. Um, but at the same time, you know, we do we don't in practice give those values infinite weight, but we have to sort of pretend that we do. Um, so it's a little bit of a yeah, it's almost a signaling thing where everybody knows that in reality you do have to trade this off against other stuff. But in in um our how we talk about it, like that you can't really admit that. So just as one example, um SPSP gives these diversity travel grants, right? Which is great. Um, and SPSP also spends money on other things, right? So you can imagine a situation in which every spare dollar was spent on, on diversity travel grants, right? So essentially we're saying diversity is the most important value. And it's so important that like any other consideration that comes up against it in terms of like how we get allocate our spending shouldn't receive any weight. Now, obviously that's not what SPSP does. And it would be kind of like ridiculous, Oh, I should back up and say this is the professional organization of social and personality psychologists for those listeners who don't aren't intimately familiar with this stuff. Anyway, so they spend some money on travel grants and then they spend lots of money on other stuff, right? Um, and so by their actions, they're showing, yeah, diversity is something that they care about to some degree. They're willing to spend some money, but they're not willing to spend all money. Um, but when you talk about like diversity as a value, it seems a little uncomfortable to say, yeah, we value it, but you know, maybe we value other things more. Maybe other things should take priority, right? Um, maybe we don't want to maximize diversity at all costs. And I think that, to me, that's kind of what Eli is saying, is it's, it's hard to say that. And at the same time, we all know it's true. Yeah, that's really interesting, right? So to admit because it's become the sacred value, this, this, uh, yeah, the sacred, sanctified ideal to suggest that we would somehow balance it out with more mundane considerations seems crass. It seems not right. Seems immoral. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting point. So, so one could, for example, see, um, uh, again, you know, uh, uh, members of, uh, of, this, of the society, personality, and social psychology saying, listen, the outcomes, our diversity outcomes are terrible. Clearly, we're not spending enough money or time or, 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 or energy on this, and way more is needed, even if objectively um, the amount we are you know, paying or, or considering it is, is a great deal. You can't actually even argue with it. Uh, it's an impossible thing to do uh, because of, um, yeah, because it becomes moralized. Yeah, so that's, that, I think that's an interesting point. Um, so, but I mean, we're not, we're not here to do that though. <laughs> not so I whatsoever. think we're here. Yeah. I think, I think we're here to like try to take a rational lens and, and see what it can and cannot, you know, what are the good things, what are the pros and what are the cons of our, um, our current discourse around privilege. But I wonder you off now is the good time to maybe finish off our beers and uh, take a little break. That sounds amazing. See you in. All right. Uh Five minutes. I'm gonna ch I'm gonna chug on air because oh, I, Jesus Christ. All right. Yeah, man. You know, you do. I don't I don't care if it's nine a.m. It's like I, I'm about to say something that's gonna get me accused of even more privilege than I already do get accused of. So, All right. Uh, All okay. right. Drink your beer, man. Just do it.
And we're back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So probably the easiest way to reach us is on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. You can uh, mention us. You can DM us. Our DMs are open, um, and we both check that account on a pretty regular basis. If you're more of an email person, our email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com, which goes to both of us. Finally, you can find all of our uh, back catalog at fourbeers.fireside.fm. Obviously, listen to the latest episode there as well. And you can contact us via the feedback form on the webpage if for some reason that's something you're into. Um, Mickey, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I'd like to encourage our listeners to uh, give us a rating uh, on iTunes. It helps others find us. And uh, we love to hear the feedback. Uh, so uh, please rate us if you can. Uh, we would appreciate it. Right on. So uh, what, uh, what are you drinking? You still you chugged your last beer. Um, what, are, what are you on now? Yeah, I chugged my last one in preparation for, uh, you know, this, this upcoming segment. So I was drinking uh, this craft beer called Tumage uh, from Bali. But so I bought two of them, and these were not cheap. You know, it's 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 hard to find these uh, on the island. Um, but the first one I fucking opened had this fancy kind of wrapper on top, and the glass cracked. Um, and there was a part of me that was like, you know, I'm not gonna. Nothing will happen if I drink glass. Right. What's right? a little broken glass? Yeah. Yeah. What's a little broken glass? Anyhow, I dumped the beer, um, and instead I'm drinking good old Bintang, which is everywhere. Uh, it's fine. It's good. Um, it's especially good after you surf a little. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you made the effort. So I'm still finishing this uh, somewhat intense uh, Delirium Tremens fruit edition. Uh, but once I finish that, um, I don't think I'm going to drink more beer. I'm going to switch to something a little stronger. So I brought back this mezcal um, from Mexico City, and there's still a little bit left you can see here. So I'll have a little bit of that. Yeah. So, so let's see. We were before the break. I think I was about to ask you to sort of talk about what you think of the concept of privilege. Um, like to really answer Eli's question, where do you think it helps? Where do you think it hurts? What's good about it? What's bad about it? What do you think? Yeah. Yes. I've thought about it quite a bit and I, I hope my answers are, um, somewhat intelligible. Um, I think, so the first time I encountered the concept of, of privilege, um, I must admit I found it to be quite eye-opening. It, it, it was it was a it was positive in the sense that it allowed me to see things that I'd previously not seen. Okay, and usually we think about privilege as advantages that you have that you haven't necessarily earned uh, or are not necessarily you know in your control. Okay. So the first time I encountered this was this video I saw on YouTube. It had a, a line full of people um, who were asked either to step forward or step backwards uh, whenever they answered a question in the, in the affirmative. And they would step forward if, if, if it was an, an, an affirmative answer to a, something where they do have privilege or step backwards where it's an affirmative answer to something where they don't have privilege. So questions were like, you know, uh, did your parents always have a job? Did your parents only have one job? Did your parents need to work the night shift or the weekends? Um, could you show public affection to your partner without fear? Um, were you ever embarrassed by your clothes or your house? Have you ever been bullied or made fun of because of something you can't change? Um, did you get time off for your religious holidays? Did you have a supportive family environment? Have you ever been stopped routinely by the police for a supposedly routine traffic stop? Um, have you ever been followed in a store for no apparent reason? So, these are all the things uh, that, you know, people answered. And by the end of it, you saw this kind of huge separation between the various people in this video. And it was eye-opening. I mean, it just made me realize that, you know, some of us have stuff. Um, we have, like, conditions. We have structures uh, that help us. Some of us don't have those, those structures and they don't help us. So, I mean, I think for one thing for me, so, so, so my parents are, are together. They're not divorced, but I wouldn't call uh, their marriage a necessarily good one. Uh, there wasn't a lot of peace in our house. Um, but nonetheless, I, I had a supportive family. Uh, my parents supported me during uh, my university years. I, I think I got student loans, but they also paid for, for, for large parts of it. Um, and uh, that's not the case for, for many, many people. Um, so I think one major advantage of this talk of privilege is making you realize all the stuff that you have 
Um, so when you, you, know, you hear some people say, like, I'm a self-made person. You know, I do this all by myself. Well, no, no one is a self-made person. Everyone's a product of their societies, their families, their cultures, where they were born. And I think this talk of privilege um, opened my eyes to that, made me realize that. And I think that's valuable. I think it, it, it lets me empathize with people who have less privilege. So it's not supposed to be just, though, that some people have advantages that other people don't, right? Those, the advantages and disadvantages are supposed to pertain to some sort of identity characteristics, some sort of group membership, right? This is like actually, a, I, I thought, like a very kind of group-based way of thinking about if you're a member of group X, you're presumed to have you know, more privileged than a member of group Y, which is, you know, lower status in society, right? And of course, like people are members of different identity groups and those things intersect. But you can sort of say like, well, as a person who is next Y and Z, you're more privileged than somebody who isn't those things, right? Yeah, I think that's true. And, and all those questions that I, that I kind of, that were asked in that video correlate with group membership. Right. So, you know, being stopped by police, being followed by by people in stores, that correlates with race. Um, being uh, uh, being unafraid to show public affection that correlates with sexual orientation, um, you know, being ashamed of your clothes uh, or your house. It correlates with um, socioeconomic status or race, um, you know, having religious being able to have time off for religious holidays correlates with religious identity. So, yeah, all those things uh, are group based, but I would extend the concept. It doesn't only have to be group-based. I think there are some things where you might check off every single box out there in terms of group identities, but still not necessarily have the same privileges that other people of your same identity have. But I think you're right, though. We mostly use um, group markers as correlates for things that will provide you with privilege. Um, so again, so for me, that's, you know, that's, that's a positive. Yeah, I mean... I think getting people to recognize the advantages that they've had. And like, of course, we like to think that like we're solely responsible for our good outcomes and other stuff is solely responsible for our bad outcomes. And I think it's helpful to say like, hey, look, you know, you've probably benefited from X, Y, and Z thing that you're not really thinking about um, because you like to attribute all your successes to you. Um that's useful. Right. You hear that sometimes. I think you hear that sometimes with some conservatives who they're talking about, like, they want to be treated as an individual. They want to talk about individuals, not about groups. And I think, I mean, I, I get that. And I, and I agree with that to some extent. But some people have no choice. They can't be treated as an individual because people see them because of their groups, how they wear, the color of their skin, their sexual orientations, and they're judged by that, and they can or cannot do certain things because of that. And I think this exercise in understanding privilege um, at least may, opens your eyes to it, makes you aware of it, and then you can potentially do something about it, right? You could be an ally. You could decide to uh, to to, um, to help people or to uh, to vote for parties that are willing to take to make policy that will try to equalize the playing field a little bit. So I think that's that that's where it's positive. Right. I mean, I don't think even most conservatives would object to the idea of counting your blessings. Um, I think what people object to is something like, well, as a white man, you're obviously more privileged than this person over here, and therefore, whatever. The therefore doesn't even really matter. Because that, at that point, I think it's valid to say, like, well, you don't know me. Like, you don't know what I've struggled with. You're actually reductively assuming that I'm the sum total of my, like, visible identity characteristics. And maybe I'm not, right? So, like, isn't it that kind of leap from, you know, on a group level, most people experience these advantages to saying, like, you as an individual must be more advantaged because of your group membership? Right. So that, that for me is a big con. It's a big negative. And I want to talk about that. But first, let me just kind of talk a bit more about the positives. And I mean, to be honest, like my my pro is pretty much that same point over and over again. It's just the benefits of seeing things. Um, but I want to maybe kind of illustrate that with a, with a few more you know things I read about. So uh, I read this. Uh, this article from The Atlantic called The Hidden Mechanisms That Help Those Born Rich to Excel in Elite Jobs, uh, written by Joe Pinsker in February of 2019. And in this uh, article, he interviews uh, Daniel Lorison and Sam Friedman, who wrote a book uh, called The Class Ceiling, Why It Pays to Be Privileged. 
And what they did, I believe these are sociologists, is they examined the ways in which, you know, uh, wealth perpetuates itself and the often invisible ways it perpetuates itself, especially in what they call elite jobs. Um, and one that really, I think, um, spoke to me, uh, because I, I have friends who kind of fit this bill perfectly, is in the acting profession. So actor acting is incredibly tough. Uh, most most actors can't make a living uh, acting alone. They've got to be bartenders or baristas or do something else. And um, most people quit acting because it's just way too tough. The ones or many of the ones that end up making it, make it because they rely on the, ba- the bank of mom and dad. Okay? Their parents are bankrolling them during the lean times, during the tough times. And what that means is that you're only getting certain voices, certain kinds of people who can be actors. Okay, it's the same thing with um, certain kinds of, of occupations or professions in the arts and the media where long internships are required. Okay, these internships uh, do not get paid typically. And again, who can afford that? It's the people who have money to begin with. Okay, so someone might think, hey, man, I worked really, really hard. I did this all on my own. And that's true, except, you know, they had mom and dad bankrolling them. You might say getting a PhD is sort of similar to that, too. Uh, you could say that. Uh, I don't think for everybody. I think we, get, we do get compensated. And so, for example, for me, I mean, my parents didn't pay for anything. Uh, they, stopped pay- they barely paid for, for, for a bachelor's degree for me. Um, so I think it's possible. But I think you're right, though, that in, like in a place like Toronto, I think some of our students need to be bankrolled by their parents. Uh, that's true. Um, the other way in which this kind of invisible you know, helping hand manifests is in... Um, cultural capital in the knowledge about what to wear, how to dress, you know, how to act. Okay. So I felt that personally as, you know, first generation college student doing a PhD, I just didn't know a lot of stuff. I didn't know what to do compared to some of my colleagues who had parents who were professors um, or uh, who were highly educated themselves. Um, there's one story in this article where they talk about someone who works in this, you know, cool hip, um, I think it was a software company. And, um, you might think like, you know, these places, of course, are cool. They don't have a, a, a dress code. And you might think that's a good thing, right? Not having a dress code is good. People, it's, it's desirable. But what it also does is then you have to rely on your own knowledge about how to dress for those workplaces. And what they noticed was that there were certain people um, who they dressed casually, but they dressed casually in the wrong way. It wasn't cool. Um, and as a result, they were kind of shunned. And as a result, they kind of left. They, they didn't end up lasting in those sorts of environments. Um, and you get people who, you know, who maybe are slightly more adept, they end up kind of faking it. They pretend to be part of this other culture, but it's tiring. It's exhausting. They aren't their true authentic selves. And, and, and in the end, they kind of leave those environments too. So these are kind of the invisible forces that um, sustain uh, people who have privilege and kind of uh, hold people who don't have that knowledge or the, the bank of mom and dad holds them back. Um, so I thought that was uh, quite interesting. Um, now I want to talk about one last thing, Yoel, and then I want to we'll talk about the cons because I think that's where it gets kind of interesting and dicey. Um, there is a, a brand new article. Actually, it's so new, I can't even find it online, but I saw a poster version of it on Twitter written by Keon West and Asia Eaton. Uh, the article is called Prejudiced and Unaware of It. Evidence for the Dunning-Kruger model in the domains of racism and sexism. Okay, and I think many of our listeners will know what the uh, Dunning-Kruger effect is. It's essentially that those people who have the least amount of skills in whatever topic domain you could think of have the least knowledge of how unskilled they actually are. Okay, so um, and what these authors did is they 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 took this in the domain of prejudice, and what they found was that those people who were the most prejudiced had were the least aware of how prejudiced they actually are. Okay, now the reason I bring this up is that something like talk of privilege might open people's eyes and might allow people to have more metacognitive awareness of their shortcomings and maybe do something to correct it, potentially. I say potentially because these authors actually examined the impact of a diversity training on this, you know, metacognitive awareness. It found no effect. 
Um, now, who knows what that diversity training was? I couldn't get any details. It might be training in the IAT and how it's, you know, all about implicit bias. That's not going to be helpful in this domain. Um, but nonetheless, I think at least in theory, there is uh, a possibility of, you know, talk of privilege, giving people the knowledge that uh, they could use to help them uh, become more aware and then maybe become be more likely to, to help and, and be supportive of policy that corrects things. Okay, so that's all the good stuff, um, which I guess, yeah, it's like largely around the idea of raising awareness. And if you read the article uh, by Peggy McIntosh that introduced this concept, um, or at least like popularized it recently because it's come up historically before. Like, that's the way that she talks about it, right? Like, here's my awareness of how it helped me to be white, the advantages that I have being white versus a racial minority. And and, and she talks about it, like, very kind of explicitly as, like, this will help you kind of be a better person, right? It's 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 very much focused on, like, Hey, once you start thinking about this stuff, you realize, um, you know, the the ways that uh, you're kind of taking things for granted or maybe being annoying to be around because you assume everybody has the same advantages that you do. Right. And I I, I have to think that, like, most people are would be on board with that idea. Right. Like, I, I don't see how ideologically you can object to the idea that some people have certain advantages um, that they've benefited from. I mean, you know. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm Jordan Peterson. Right, aside, exactly, no <laughs> exactly. Certain salient examples aside, um, I think that's a pretty common sense notion. So, so then, what are wh- what are people objecting to when they object to this concept? Yeah. Uh, so okay. So again, this is just my own fucking you know spitballing here. Um, I came up with I think three sort of broad reasons. Uh, one is not that interesting, but uh, I'll talk about it at the very end. Um, I think the first one is interesting, but I, maybe you'll disagree. Um, so my my argument here is that talk of privilege, I think what it does is it focuses on those who have the privilege and not on those who have the disadvantage. So when I grew up as a social psychologist, you know, in graduate school and uh, assistant professor, I studied stigma. I studied, you know, those groups that were marginalized in society and, um, you know, by talking about their disadvantages, you know, hopefully we would, we, again, also become aware and try to help. But it seems like the topic, the, the, the focus has shifted from the targets of disadvantage to the people who have the advantage, okay? And I think that subtle shift, um, while it has positives, like it makes one aware, as we just discussed, I think it has some major negatives. I think, for me, one negative is that it leads to feelings of guilt and shame, Okay. Now, guilt and shame is not necessarily a bad thing. It might encourage people to act collectively to help people. But I think it might be equally likely to get, to encourage people to feel threatened and defensive and reactive and close-minded. Okay. By telling people who, because by dint of some immutable characteristic that they are privileged, they might react negatively to that. And they might defend what is legitimate and real privilege. So I'm not sure it helps people get on board. And I want to make a contrast here between, you know, feelings of gratitude versus feelings of guilt and shame. I think this, all this privilege talk makes, can make people feel ashamed, can make people feel guilty and then defensive and then just not want to talk, not want to speak. Versus um, if, you know, you're grateful for the privileges that you have. You're thankful for the privileges you have. You feel lucky for the privileges you have. Now, I know the research I'm about to uh, to mention, some of it, who knows, is questionable. I'm not sure how reliable some of this stuff is. But there's research on the, you know, uh, on the impacts of gratitude, right? That gratitude might increase patience and self-control. It might uh, improve friendship. It's certainly better for your mental health, uh, it seems. Um, It might make you, uh, David Desteno just has some work uh, suggesting it might uh, make you more honest, Okay, I think the point I want to make is that when you feel grateful, you might be more willing to help. You might be more willing to to mentor because you feel lucky. You feel good. Whereas if you feel ashamed, if you feel guilty, 
you're at best going to shut up, or at worst, you're going to deny and obfuscate. Um, and I think that's a problem. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Like, so if you take something where, let's say, white Americans and black Americans have different experiences, like, you know, if you're black, you get on average pulled over a lot more. Right. And you could focus that in a way that's like you white people don't know how good you have it not getting pulled over all the time. Or you could say, like, I as a black person got pulled over five times in the last month for, you know, bullshit, like your taillights out when it wasn't or whatever. I, I The latter I feel like everybody can relate to like, wow, that seems really unfair. And I guess like implicitly in there is the comparison of like, well, I hardly ever get pulled over. Like the last time I got pulled over was for running a red light, you know, but like it doesn't kind of explicitly put the focus on the majority group member, the person who's like better off. And maybe that's that is a mistake. Like maybe you make people more defensive that way. And maybe also like even if you're not going to be defensive about it, even if you're like you know, wholeheartedly like endorsing this, it becomes a sort of exercise in like virtue signaling masochism or whatever, right? So instead of actually focusing on the problem, which is like these people over here are being treated badly, it becomes a contest to say like how bad I feel for being treated better, right? So it's like, again, just kind of like focusing on the people who need the least attention by virtue of their higher status. That's right. So, and actually, that what you just mentioned is is actually my third reason. I'll just might as well just skip to it. Um, it's just kind of this notion of oppression Olympics, right? We did that, right? So I got a fifty-seven on the uh, privilege scale. I beat you, dude. I got the gold. You got like you were like in twelfth or something. Um, Listen, so, I just want to point out: almost died of cancer was not on the list, and I feel that <laughs> <it is unfair. laughs> that should be fucking counted. Bullshit, man. You're just you're just like full of privilege and you just won't admit it. Yeah, that's right. Admit it. Well, you know, to be fair, being short was not on the list either. So <laughs> those two even out, right? In my yes, opinion. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. But I mean, so like we're kind of laughing, but you see this happening, right? You see like this these kind of contests, these pissing contests about who has more or less right to speak based on how how much lack of privilege they have. And it's fucking idiotic. It's stupid. Um, but yet we see it. So that's, that's also what happens with like all this talk of privilege is you have these, these, these contests. Um, and, you know, people are imaginative and, you know, we can come up with all different kinds of ways that we, we lack privilege in our lives um, that don't maybe cohere to these, you know, uh, traditional group boundaries. But still, you know, we've all had shit happen to us. I mean, except for, for a few. Um, so, I, I don't. I don't know if we want to be competing on that dimension, um, and it seems like that's what we're doing because we're giving people more or less you know, room to speak because of it. Yeah. So it, I guess that's uh, on the like the side of I'm going to claim that I'm less privileged because of X, Y, and Z. But I think there's also on the flip side people who are like well-meaningly like, oh, I'm more privileged because of X, Y, and Z. And I guess good that they're recognizing it, but it almost like when the dialogue then becomes again about them, it's like that kind of misses the point of the problem, which is that other people are worse off, right? It's a way of like for, for people who are in the best position to keep claiming the spotlight and like making it about them again, you know? Like, yeah, right? That was, yeah, I so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, I guess, a subtle distinction, but like, I think uh, one that, that matters. Yeah, that's right. So you know, I'm going to, I'm going to debase myself here by showing how much privilege I have and why you shouldn't even listen to me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and it's just like, what the fuck are we doing here? Is this actual serious dialogue? Um, okay. So now uh, my, my second, but actually, you know, we moved it to my third and I, and I think it, 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 it's the, um, I think the most important one, to be honest. So maybe maybe it's good that, that, I, that my third and last one um, is that talk of privilege, acknowledging privilege, gives too much weight to the immutable characteristics of a person. Okay, it encourages people to be judged by the color of their skin, or their sex, or their sexual orientation, or their religion, whatever it is, and not the content of their character. Okay, it's the exact opposite of what Martin Luther King Jr. said on his famous speech. Okay, you're encouraging people to be judged by the color of their skin and not the content of their character. Okay, because people are given more or less room to speak if 
they belong to a certain characteristic. Now, of course, we're flipping things, right? We're saying, you know, if you lack privilege and you lack privilege because you belong to a certain race or a certain demographic, you know, characteristic, therefore I should listen to you more. And if you belong to another demographic characteristic, which is, you know, the dominant one, I should listen to you less. Um, but still, you're judging people based on, you know, on these immutable characteristics they have no control over and not what they're actually saying. So, for example, um, and this is kind of gets to what Eli Finkel mentioned in the email. Um, Bill Gates maybe says something. Um, and Bill Gates is white and rich and a man and cisgendered. Yet he might have really, really interesting and important things to say. And I shouldn't downgrade what he has to say just because he fills all those boxes. Yeah. So I think there's this interesting distinction between, you know, using this concept of privilege to reflect on your own advantages and using it sort of adversarially to say, well, you know, we shouldn't listen to you. Your opinion is less important or really just anything like it doesn't even have to be like shut up. It can be whatever, like it, it just making a judgment about somebody's like, quote unquote, level of privilege based on what you observe about them, because like you don't know their life, right? Like whatever inferences you make about they're more or less privileged, you're doing that on the basis of what you can observe about them and you might be really wrong. So it seems like we should have some humility about saying like, I don't know what struggles you faced. Right. I know what advantage I can reflect about what advantages I might have had, but I don't know what's going on with you. And to me, that's sort of like that crosses a line that I don't want to cross. That's that's a little bit about reducing people to their like essential group characteristics. Like it's saying like, well, all black people are the same. All white people are the same. All men are the same. And that's obviously not true. We know that's not true in a different context. That's like obviously racist or whatever. Um and I, I do think that that is, that, that is what I think critics on the right of the application of this concept really are objecting to, like being essentialized on the basis of their characteristics. And I do think that's, there's merit to that. Like, I don't think that's the sort of thinking that we should be encouraging. Yeah, I agree. I mean, to be fair to this notion, I mean, I think it's okay to remind yourself or to remind your interlocutor, hey, your opinion is is one perspective. And it may be coming from a perspective of privilege, perhaps. Right. And I think it's it's incumbent on us as, you know, citizens, uh and with some awareness to yeah, to have that awareness, right? And to realize that like like not to project my own experiences onto the world that people have different experiences. So anyhow, um I feel uh you know kind of, uh, I enjoyed thinking about this, about this topic, because number one, you know, clearly you and I uh, like talking about controversial ideas. We don't shy away from it. Um, but uh, I think this is a good one to think about. And, and, and I'm left, um, I'm left ambivalent. You know, I, I think, I think, I think personally, I've learned a lot from talk of privilege. I, I feel it has opened my eyes. Um, I just wish the way it manifests was, you know, more honest. I wish the way it manifests was not, you know, done in a spirit of meanness and shaming people, which sometimes you see happening, um, and more as a way to remind ourselves of the, of the good things that we have and the good things that other people don't and to try to help those people without, you know, um, uh, the, the, the shaming that goes on for, thing, for things that people can't control. Right. Right. I think of it as like a useful tool to examine your own advantages, less useful when it's being weaponized against somebody else. Um, one other thing that I want to toss in here, um, and I, I deliberately save this till the end in case you think it's dumb. And then in that case, we can just cut it out. But I do think that the way that people talk about like earned versus unearned benefits it shows how like kind of dualist we still are in some ways in, in our thinking about people. Because I think if you're like a materialist, then like we've all, everything is equally unearned, right? You're not responsible for any of it. 
like your intelligence, your work ethic, your grit, your perseverance, your whatever you want to call it, like the thing that like you can point to as like, well, that's why I deserve this. It's all a product of your genes and your environment. Like there's no you there to claim ownership really over any of that. There's no like external cause to any of that that's you. It's all just stuff that happened to matter. And you happen to attach like some of it to like the quote unquote person you are, but it's all equally nonsensical in the end. Don't you think? Yeah, I love that. Yeah, that, that's a great point. I mean, this is like, you know, free will is an illusion. And, you know, we have all these uh, characteristics that we're born with that, you know, are determined by our genetics or by environment. But we didn't have a choice in which environment we grew up with. And they make us the people we are. And then we end up doing things and saying things and acting in certain ways that are also unearned. You're right. Um so all of it is unearned. So uh, none of us are responsible. And uh, yeah, I, I get it. But it's, it's hard to know what to do with that, though, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. We still have to live in the world. We still have to decide who to promote and who to fire. Um, you go rob a bank and that's not going to be a very convincing excuse, right? I, I, I just think it's it's interesting. You just like cannot get away from these dualist notions of somewhere out there, there's this like uncaused causal agent that's like Mickey or Yoel, and they deserve blame and credit. If only we can figure out the stuff that that thing did versus all the other stuff. That's right. Yeah, that's right. You know, I, you know, this, the, the free will not existing applies to everyone else, Yoel. To me, you know, I'm, you know, I'm smart because I worked hard, damn it. And, you know, I got here based on all my work. I wasn't helped or any, in any which way whatsoever by my genes or environment. It's all me. 